You're listening to the Loose Filter Podcast. This is the History of Punk Part 2. We're going to pick up our journey. If you haven't listened to the History of Punk Part 1, stop listening right now because this one won't make any sense. No, I'm kidding. This one will make sense too. But uh, To get the full experience, you want to listen to the you, first episode because it's going to draw a clear line from like start to finish. This the is the full experience, man. This will be the middle chapter, the Empire Strikes Back of the trilogy. The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> As always, I'm your host, Stuart Sims. We have our full regular crew of irregulars here to talk about a second step in our journey. Hi, I'm Lisette Sims. Anthony Campolo. This is Dave. Leave the bottle, Gant. I'm I'm gonna have a new nickname every every episode. Every episode, oh, this is your yes. new thing. Yeah. New, new nickname. Yeah. What if one like sticks? Can we keep it if we really like it? Yeah, Can we can go it. with it. Anthony, as before in part one, you are our tour guide, resident punk expert, resident punk expert. And real quick, if you could, in case anybody listening has not listened to part one, in part one we talked about the Velvet Underground, the Velvet Underground, and Nico. This was the what we consider the beginning point of a lot of the ideas and styles that led to punk and its creation. So with this episode, we're going to draw the line throughout the seventies of the proto-punk bands that evolved and grew into the style that we now know as punk. And we're going to see with a lot of these bands have a very direct connection with the Velvet Underground as a stylistic influence, as a musical influence, and even working with the people in that band working with these other bands. And that's why I would encourage anybody, if you like this episode and you hadn't listened to part one, go back and listen to it to hear what we pull out. We listen to a bunch of Velvet Underground and Nico tracks and talk about what in those tracks made them not only what they were, but what was going to become influential, right? Exactly. And this was 68... 67. 67, okay. So we're picking off here in 1969 with The Stooges. And The Stooges' first album has a very clear connection, because as we said, The Velvet Underground was led by Lou Reed and John Cale. Those are the two primary movers in that band, stylistically, musically, creatively. John Cale produced the Stooges first album so he has a very direct influence on it because he literally helped them create it that's fascinating that direct transmission so quickly after the Velvet Underground did their work together is really fascinating to me and again like as in the episode before you really are our tour guide here because Lisette Dave and I have not really listened to much punk you know so a actually lot of I was is- obsessed with punk but it's all 83 onward. Okay, okay. So this will set the stage to where this leads to. So let's listen to I Want to Be Your Dog. So messed up, I want you here. In my room, I want you Face. 
to give a little historical context, this is 1969. So this is the year that the Beatles released Abbey Road, that Led Zeppelin releases their first album. So we're starting to see the transition from the 60s rock era into what we think of at the 70s, the more hard rock, a lot more distorted, a lot more aggressive. And the Stooges were leading that to a very big degree. Can I take a tangent here, if you don't mind? Absolutely. Do we have a definition for punk as a genre rather than an aesthetic? Absolutely. This, what we're going to see is how the musical properties of punk started to solidify and started to become almost a trope. The Stooges are seen as a proto-punk band. We talked about in the last episode how the first punk band that really is considered to encompass all the musical characteristics of punk is the Ramones. Mm -hmm. And the Ramones is where we're going to be leading to later in this episode because they combine... So my question should actually wait for the codifiers, I guess. Exactly. We're about to see how the codifiers come into play and become what we think of as this one specific style of music that is punk. So my question was too early. My bad. (laughs) Well, I think you hear in the Stooges, there are some elements in the track we just listened to that become hallmarks of punk mm-hmm. rock as a stylistic practice yeah i was just wondering if we have like a set of those that we yeah can... this is what you'll get if you look it up short or fast-paced songs is very typical hard-edged melodies and singing styles stripped down instrumentation and often political anti-establishment lyrics it embraces a do-it-yourself ethic many bands self-produced and distributed them through informal channels so a lot of that is uh, like we heard that in that track right the hard-edged melody and the singing style mm-hmm. the band you know it was a lot of heavy sound and played really loudly but in the production it was pushed back a little bit and the singer's voice was really up in the front and clear and so it really put an edge to the vocal line of the music, like he was really almost kind of in my face and pointing his finger at me. It was really very insistent. Yeah, Iggy Pop's ability as a performer, also along with being a vocalist, is really what drew a lot of people to the Stooges because he was so aggressive and he was so out there. He was like an even more extreme version of Jim Morrison to a certain extent, how when he was performing live, he would just go all out and he would do crazy things and he would just go nuts. (laughs) I've got to say this evokes a little bit of Rolling Stones for me. Like, I can hear some Mick Jagger going His, on in there. The swagger in Iggy Pop's delivery is... Well, and, like, the drive very, of the yeah. music and the energy of the music also, to me, kind of strums the same well, feelings that the Rolling Stones do for me. And that's how I can hear them as a proto-punk band, because it still sounds like a rock band to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I can hear the style is a little bit emergent, but they're still a rock band. Another thing that I found interesting is that what was it? It was like that one chord the whole song that they right. just kept like like just well, no there are multiple chords but there's like one tone one note that that the like percussion or something yeah there's is a pedal that goes through the whole thing yeah there's a pedal yeah but the piano. chords are changed they're like three okay, chords that's what it is. changing yeah. underneath it so the pedal drives through the whole thing which is fascinating because if we reverse engineer and we've talked about this on different episodes John Cale produced the Stooges mm-hmm. right John Cale was in Velvet Underground but he also collaborated with an early minimalist composer and that minimalism aesthetic we're listening to a proto-punk band the minimalist aesthetic is in there Uh uh-huh we talked about in our last episode the connection to the drone culture the stooges actually have drone kind of music if you listen to their first album there's a 10 minute long track that's very droney 
And that was the thing they did when they played live. I like that word, droney. Droney. <laughs> this is We Will Fall, also from their first album. definitely proto-punk i would expect that is uh i find that as a fun little alternate universe of influences that punk didn't really dwell on very much but could have this so feels it, really doorsy to me is is my my impression just of my personal experience that that reminds me very much of like the end definitely like ex- except that they took that one part of it and then extended it for like eight minutes right yeah it goes to the extreme on the drone yeah. end this is another connection, of course, this is a world I come from, but this is another connection from punk into the really avant-garde experimental music composition world, because 1967-68, Pauline Oliveros started doing her deep listening stuff, and that was happening in, like, I think San Diego first, and then she was up in uh, at Mills College, you know, in the Bay Area. Yeah. So this was kind of part and parcel of that whole experimental music culture, it seems like. And that'll be a running thread throughout the history of punk. There's a lot of connections to the avant-garde art world. That's why I think the Velvet Underground makes such a great starting point, because they are right at that inflection point between the counterculture, the underground, the visual art world, the New York art scene, all of that stuff. And of course, with John Cale producing the Stooges, direct transmission creatively, Mm-hmm. Right, okay. And of course, all of those guys had listened to the Velvet Underground and were inspired by their independence and their more forward-thinking use of guitar tones. All of the stuff that John Cale brought to the table then seeps into the Stooges' music. The musicians of the Stooges are just as important as Iggy Pop, and I feel like they don't really get enough credit because Iggy Pop has such a strong personality. He gets a lot of the credit. But the Ashton brothers, Scott Ashton and Ron Ashton, really create the core of the Stooges sound. Which what, is, what were they doing in the band? So they're the two guitarists, and then sometimes they switch off and play bass, too. So they are creating really what we think of as the dominant sound of the Stooges, which comes from the guitar sound and the more aggressive guitar playing. And this is what brought guys like Lester Bangs, was really into the Stooges. He was one of their first earliest champions because he just thought they were the best and they had the coolest sounds and that they were so aggressive. And there's that scene in Almost Famous where Philip Seymour Hoffman is playing Lester Bangs and he's in the studio on like a radio show. He's going through all the records and he finds the Stooges. He's like, here we go. This is some real rock and roll. He plays it on and starts just like thrashing around the room. It's a great scene. Great scene. Yeah. And that was when music journalism not only was a thing, but it was influential. (laughs) So when Lester Bangs was writing about him, people would go, oh, yeah, I'll go listen to him. Right. People were really drawn to the Stooges along with the Velvet Underground because they continued that underground, more confrontational aesthetic. They were really pushing the boundaries of what you could do with rock music. 
and they were setting the parameters of how far you could go with it. And this is a running theme with a lot of these bands is that they continue to try and push rock in the most confrontational, in-your-face sort of way. This has always been my criticism of punk, I guess, or maybe it was just personally why I was never drawn to it, is I felt like it's social or political stance or attitude as a counterculture subculture was what drove its creative presentation rather than the, you know, like I wanted the music to drive it first, not the political and social stuff. Do you get the sense that, I mean, obviously there's, that's a source of it, but it seems like now that I'm understanding the origins better, there's a genuine, maybe just purely creative motivation too. That makes sense. That question. That's great. (laughs) I think that what you're reacting to was the character of punk. And that's what we're going to see in this episode is how punk was commodified. Punk was turned into a brand when when you look at the history of it, what punk really represents is creative expression, artistic expression in its most pure form, its most undiluted form. And so when you have the more political angle, that was certainly a part of it, and that was a big part of it, but the political angle... And the fashion and the style especially started to become overriding traits of what people thought as punk. And I think we lose a lot of the complexity and a lot of what made punk interesting. And that's what I really want to try and bring out with these episodes is that there's much deeper ideas and artistic motivation behind this music that people don't really think about. So you think it was maybe done a little bit of a disservice potentially by the stereotypes that were created by those maybe more physical aspects like the fashion. For me personally, as much as I love a lot of kinds of rock music, I'm not terribly familiar with punk and I do conceive of it in the same way with pretty stereotyped ideas about what a punk rock band should be or was or what fans look like or what kind of people they are and that's just my own associations but do you think that's a disservice to what punk really is oh 100 percent yeah 100 percent well and two it's people always we use music so tribally for identification and social cohesion and so forth i can see the political stuff and the social stuff and the fashion stuff easily eclipse people actually listening to the music and being driven by the creative work because we're social animals. That political and social aspect of this type of music, that's sort of present in most types of art. They're just sort of invisible to us when we're part of that group. (laughs) You know, That's true. This is just a group of people that that have a different social and political stance than you, but but in fact, that's always behind a lot of creative work, right? Yeah, but with punk, I think it's its confrontational nature. It's more distinctive. And the fashion aspect, certainly through the 80s, when punk is like a fashion thing emerged, is very distinctive and very visually confrontational to people who are more in the box, you know? And and that's by design, I think. The fashion was a signifier of the confrontational attitude. It was... I don't subscribe to your lifestyle. I don't subscribe to your political ideas. I don't subscribe to your reality. So I'm not going to dress the way you dress. I'm not going to have the cultural signifiers that you have. Punk was very much a reaction against the older generation. It was very much about tearing it down and starting new. So people see it as a confrontational thing because it was very confrontational to the previous generation. 
And that's how it almost becomes, uh, it turns in on itself, right? Because then like you present yourself visually in a certain way to make that statement. I'm not like you. I reject your values. I have different values. But then it becomes hard to accept someone who isn't part of the culture. It becomes its own closed culture. Do you see what it I'm becomes trying to a say? Ca- it becomes a catch-22. You rebel by adopting a different set of authorities to go along with and different tropes to follow so yeah it becomes very almost self-defeating in that you are trying to be individualistic but you're drawn to a different sort of mob mindset the stooges like the velvet underground didn't achieve much commercial success but they slowly started to build up a legend around them and the stooges really gained their legendary status from iggy pop and his insane live performances. They were known for him just being totally unpredictable. He did things like smearing hamburger meat and peanut butter all over himself and rolling around in shards of glass and flashing himself to the audience. And apparently he even was credited with inventing stage diving. So he... (laughs) Very easy to see why people would talk about what they see when they go see the Stooges because there's lots I, to talk I'd about. I'd go watch that. Yeah, this guy just kind of going insane on stage. But I think that that really distracts from the more musical ways that the Stooges pushed the music forward because they were really the ones to get a lot of the tropes of punk started with their more aggressive guitar sound, use of guitar timbres, and they also help set the independent punk mindset of punk is about making the kind of music you want to make and not having to go along with popular trends. Can I, uh, just to be the pedant of the group, Mm -hmm. as is my way, can we define all those things we just talked about there, um, the more aggressive guitar sound? Like, what what are you talking about specifically? More distortion, more of a driving rhythmic approach instead of a melodic approach. Okay. Not so much emphasis on different chord changes as much as less complexity in the harmony. Okay. It sounds like, too, I mean, obviously the production aesthetic is do-it-yourself. Like, it sounds like it was made in a bathroom or something. I mean, it's not real high-end production either. Mm -hmm. But there's something about that, too, that contributes to the aesthetic of the music that makes it sound more naked somehow. Uh, if that makes sense to me, it, it's always sound like really stripped down music in that sense. When like, you know, Led Zeppelin, a band with the same instrumentation sounds huge and full. Absolutely. The raw sound of the recording is a very big part of the influence that they had. When you recorded the Stooges, John Cale wanted to get the sound of them live, of their energy live. That's what he was really going for. And that became a long running thing in punk is trying to capture the live energy of so these bands. Just way less studio polish put on all these things. You were just recording these. Right. The amps and. and yeah. they, it's a reaction against the growing complexity in prog rock that we're going to see throughout the 70s. You see these two forms of rock that are splitting off in these two ways. You have the way of Genesis or King Crimson with the more classical, jazz, studio, electronic, all that complexity. And then this other strand going for more of the simplicity of what made rock appealing in the first place, which is more primal simplicity of the music. It also seems that this idea that in American recorded music certainly is has always been an important and complicated idea is in play, and that's authenticity. Mm-hmm. The idea of authenticity, American 
listeners in particular have always prized authenticity in their musicians however we define it it defines it's a sliding kind of scale right nebulous yeah it is it is it's a squishy term but i think that that's something that seemed to me central even in pre-punk not even the proto-punk that we're in now but you back up to vu or even before that the composers the experimental that they were doing is that finding something okay so modernism which is a couple generations back even further, but is in that sense about authenticity. Make it new, make it your own. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like coming into the late 60s, that had kind of morphed a little bit into not just make it your own, but like do it yourself in a homemade, direct way. And don't make it too complicated because that means that you're somehow hiding behind fancy words or sounds and just, you know, be very plain spoken. So it's like they kind of are expanding what they think authentic is coming off of velvet underground there are these two bands that i think really represent the two different sides the stooges represent the john kale side of the more experimental sounds and textures and timbres and now we're going to look at patty smith who represents the more lou reed side of velvet underground and she's been called the punk poet laureate because she was really a poet the same way Lou Reed was. Lou Reed studied poetry in school, and Patti Smith considered herself a direct descendant of the poetry world, combined with this new emerging punk aesthetic. Patti Smith, along with some of the other groups we're going to be talking about, was based in New York and played a lot at CBGB, which stands for Country, Bluegrass, and Blues, and became most famous for none of those. (laughs) (laughs) And there was a terrible, terrible movie just made about it. Don't see it. All right. <laughs> Patti Smith, along with her band, is a lot like the Stooges in that the front man, and in this case the front woman, gets a lot of the credit and a lot of what made them so legendary and influential. But you also have to take into account the musicians. And I think Patti Smith's bandmates were really a big part of what made her music so great. The first album that she released is highly highly influential called horses and that has jd daughtery on drums lenny k on guitar and ivan kroll on bass and so that was her band and this was also produced by john kale so we see this other direct influence through the velvet underground and patty smith in 1996 was the speaker to induct the velvet underground into the rock and roll hall of fame This is the first track from Horses. It's called Gloria.
so first off, I want to say I love that. I've never listened to that, and I'm excited to do so because I really, really liked it. This album is killer. Yeah, that was that was fantastic. My naive listening, as it were, I I feel like I heard a lot of folk influence that I'm I'm kind of or not folk. I did no totally. It felt really totally. folky folk to me, and I I, I like oh no, the, it like it felt like bluegrassy country. Totally. I listened to a lot of like the '60s female singer songwriter folk genre, and I was like, oh yeah, I, I I get this. And then also, what year is this again? This is 1975. Okay, this reminds me a lot of Kate Bush, Kick Inside, like her first album, but like a lot less proggy and a lot more. uh, The production aesthetic is very similar um, and and sort of vocally some similarities there, but it's not at all as proggy, I guess, (laughs) as Kick Inside is. Right. But yeah, that's so those are two things I love that I, I relate directly to this. But yeah, I'm excited to listen to the rest of the album. I thought it was funny you said CBG, we never had any country or bluegrass played there. I'm like, well, if patty smith played there they did because that was it that was in the first part of that track i mean it really surprised me to hear that inside that track and i also love how as it went on and turned into gloria it became a, a rock sound like all the sounds transformed mm-hmm. and and that was really that was really cool yeah this is almost an early version of a mashup in some way because it starts off with a song she wrote for the first two or three minutes and has that really famous opening line jesus died for someone's sins but not mine and then it turns into Van Morrison's Gloria, which is a song, a rock song that is the era that a lot of these musicians were hearkening back to. They were rebelling against the growing complexity of prog rock because they wanted to go back to the more primal, simplistic aspect of bands like Them, which was Van Morrison's group before Van Morrison became Van Morrison. I think it's pretty interesting to hear how her vocal delivery may have influenced Gwen Stefani. I hear a lot of what Gwen Stefani is trying to go for in her sound and Patti Smith's sound. That's a pretty clear and direct influence. Yeah, and I want to show with these episodes how much more pervasive these influences are than people realize. Yeah. We've already had a few moments between the first episode and and what we've already listened to so far for me where you finally hear the source of a sound or an aesthetic or something that you've heard either for years or a lot of, and you go, oh, that's where that comes from. Because these bands were trailblazers. These bands and these musicians very consciously were trying to create something new. They were, even though they were going back to older styles and taking influence, there was always that pressing make it new feeling to all of these groups and that's really one of the things that draws me so much to the punk world is that constant aesthetic of do something different so they're modernists exactly what i really like about studying all these influences and these earlier bands is seeing what direct connections there are between them the other band i want to talk about from the cbgb scene is television And television is a really interesting, pivotal band in the history of punk because they also represent a couple different ways that punk could have gone. They are way ahead of what most people think of as punk in terms of their musicality, their instrument ability, and their songwriting. So this is where we start to see punk branch off also into a more complex area. New York City becomes the hub for the development of punk. Patti Smith's group was one of the first... And along with that, we now see television. Television is interesting because they go the opposite direction that we're going to see the Ramones go. They're also influenced by the Velvet Underground, and they also knew Patti Smith, worked with Patti Smith. Right now with this album, Tom Verlaine, who played on the album Horses, is the main 
artistic driver. Marky Moon was released in 1977, and this is the title track. I really, really like that. Um, I did too. I, I just want to chime in. That was cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I how have I never heard? We were listening to it. Yeah, I asked, I, how did this has been around most of my life? You've introduced me to two things I'm like really excited to spend more time listening to. But Good, I, I have to say that like my impression of television here, it's sort of like prog rocky and a lot of its aesthetic. Everything kind of sounds prog rocky to you. <laughs> Is that is that your er music? Is that your your umbrella? Uh, well, that was the point? other sort of big rock movement that was having at the same time, but it's not up its own. It's not an Ouroboros. It's not like absor- <laughs> that's a much more polite way to say. Yes. It. it's not swallowing its own tail. Yes. Yeah. Um. Whereas prog rock very much did, and you're just yeah, like, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can change time signatures. Just wow, and he did it again. Great. <laughs> you're really good at playing your instruments. Like, this is not doing that. It's not like as much showmanship. And I'm like, I'm actually interested in listening to it where, instead of being just impressed by it, I guess. It's a really smart compositionally is what I really enjoy about it. But what I also appreciate about this kind of music is that they do embrace the simplicity. And it seems like kind of what you're talking about earlier, it kind of splintered in two directions, one that was more complex and one that was more simple. And I do feel like with this music, it's more about the feel of the music rather than necessarily the musical content itself. It's more like how that driving sound makes you feel, not necessarily did you like that chord progression. It's more like the atmosphere. It's embracing simplicity by choice. Instead of because that's all they know to do. They're influenced by or produced by actually directly, but that's right out of the ethos of the 50s and 60s with mm-hmm. minimalism, not just musical minimalism. I mean, visual art, sculpture, that was all in the water very strongly. What I found interesting was how they, particularly at the beginning of the track, created 
the feeling of complexity with some simple means. Yeah, there's like three the, things happening. Yeah, then they upset your feel. Like the meter isn't clear until you get into the song a it's little deceptive. bit. It's deceptive. It's deceptive, exactly. But once you get it, you know, once it lands it and locks, locks in. in, you're like, oh, this, it's pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of material going on. But I totally hear what you're saying. It's more composed, especially this track. I mean, we listened to the whole thing here during the recording, but we, obviously we won't be able to put the whole track. Yeah. You should, I encourage everybody to listen to the whole track because formally, like large scale, it works out. There's a middle section that develops and there's a, it's kind of like a sonata form thing they had going on uh-huh. in that track. Really well done. Anthony, do you have any other uh, good tracks off this album that we should, we should take a listen to? Just I highly recommend people listen to the whole album. It's really great all the way through. Let's take yeah. a listen to the very first track, See No Evil. I've got a new band to be in love with. For Another the next great track, month and yeah. a half at least. What, what year is this again? This is 1977. Okay. What's interesting to me is listening to what we've listened to so far. It's much more like you can hear its influences. Like its influences are in the music. So yeah, it's, it has it's, that disco beat. Like yeah. it comes in for like two bars each time. <laughs> It's richer in that sense, and then when you combine that with the thing I mentioned before, the aha of going, oh, that's where that thing came from, right? Because it's from 77. You can hear how it was influential. Yeah, yeah this is a, a lot. And the singer again was? Tom Verlaine. It's a lot I, richer I, listening I, I, experience. I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in love with that vocal delivery. Television was another CBGB band. They played that club a lot along with Patti Smith. We really see a huge influx of incredible bands played here. Talking Heads. Talking Heads talk about CBGB. Talking Heads, mm-hmm. yep. My third favorite band. I just always say that. I don't have a first and second. I just like to say they're my third favorite band. Which makes so much Your sense. Your list starts at number three, <laughs> yeah. so you never have to pick even a second exactly. favorite. Exactly. <laughs> Typical but Dave. They're probably actually my favorite band, but I just like to say my third favorite band. I've been saying it long enough that, I, you know, whatever. What a Dave game. I love Talking Heads so much. They're probably my first favorite band, whatever. Which makes sense why you would love television, get into it, because these guys were all very intermixed, and they were working together, they were playing the same clubs, they were influencing each other. Blondie was another act in this area. Not my third favorite band. Nope. That's number four, right? <laughs> but that's something that it is important to highlight, I think, oh, OMD, especially bro. if... Somebody listening to this podcast is in their 20s or 30s. Their musical culture is from the internet. I'm in my 20s or 30s. Like, a lot of this place mattered a lot more than it does now. Like, this style emerged. Yeah, because these people were literally listening to each other play and every night. And they could night. not send out, like, over the phone lines instantaneously right. music. Right, you, you had to go to social actually, media. like, hang out with each other. Yeah, you had to go to New York to CBGB to hear what was going on. Not only that... 
but because their music was more confrontational, their music was more experimental, it was harder to record. So it wasn't like they could just go cut an album and then everyone could hear them on the radio. You'd have to actually be there to really get into these guys when they were in their early stages. You'd have to be able to go to the clubs and see them play to really get into this music. One big characteristic I definitely instantly think of when it comes to punk music is the fact that the live concert experience is crucial. That's just part of it. That if that's not just liking the music, but it's wanting to go experience it in its live form. A lot of people are just really successful recording artists or studio artists, but with punk music in particular, you have this culture that's really drawn around that live experience. Now that we've talked about these proto-punk bands... We're going to talk about the band that most people will call ground zero of punk. The Ramones are the embodiment of every single musical characteristic that people think of as punk, which are short, fast songs, simple, melodic, and harmonic material, an emphasis on more stripped-down, do-it-yourself kind of sound and production, along with more juvenile or political lyrics the Ramones definitely air more on the side of juvenile and they have the look too I mean like the black hair and and tank top and ripped jeans and all that stuff I mean and the look also yes so we're gonna listen to the Ramones this is their first album in 1976 and this is the song Blitzkrieg Bop This is punk proper right now at this point. Exactly. Now we're into the point where we're past the proto-punk bands, the bands that all influence punk. This is what most people would call straight punk rock. This is where that sound becomes its own subgenre. Okay. Okay, so so this is the first proper punk album, right? Uh-huh. It's, very, it's very proper punk. But you, you like your first <laughs> post-punk albums are like 1978. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> punk was very short-lived. Right. We're going to see now what most people think of as punk takes place in the span of two to three years. It's a very actually tiny sliver of time that has cemented this idea and all of these signifiers. But punk songs are like 90 seconds. So that's like a lot. You can fit a lot of songs into two years. That's true. The Ramones released four albums in their first like two years. Punk years are like dog years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, punk bands historically are usually short-lived. Yeah, they're like, the band's whole career is like a year and a half, and they released, you know, 190 songs. <laughs> Daily heroin use is hard to sustain as a working musician. Yeah, it's an interesting side note that almost all of these groups being involved in the New York art world and scene, heroin was very, very prevalent through the Stooges, Patti Smith, Television, the Ramones, 
it was the thing to do for them. And these guys were quite counterculture and quite anti-establishment. They were doing crazy stuff. And it's really funny now seeing how much has been embedded into pop culture to the point where you'll hear Blitzkrieg Bop in a Pepsi commercial. Oh, yeah. One thing I was going to say about Punk's reputation, your motivation, like you've been so excited by doing a series of episodes. And I remember when you first proposed it to me, you were like, we're going to set the record straight about Punk. You, like people need to quit dismissing it. It's important. This music is, it was influential. It is influential. The culture and the music and I want to make a case for it. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. But this is something that you see often, not just in music, but in all creative work. And this was something that the composer John Adams wrote in an essay about the music of Steve Reich. And he said, this music has always consistently been dismissed because it's simple. And simple is often confused with simplistic. Like you can argue a lot and some of it's maybe taste and so forth and what the difference between simple and simplistic might be. But in a lot of people's minds, something that is simple, that is straightforward, that is made with very few elements that's easy to put together. It's transparent. And, exactly. Can't be good. There are a lot of folks who just have a a priori perspective that there's well, no way people are wrong. this can be any good. Right. They should loosen their filters. You know? They should. The simplicity became almost a resounding philosophy of the music because they wanted anybody to be able to do it. The Ramones, I think more than any other band, their appeal comes from that idea that it breaks down the rock star mythos that was prevalent throughout the 70s. When you look at Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and all those guys, the guitar gods and the singers, they were seen as almost being otherworldly to people whereas these other bands were saying no anyone can do this right if i learn to play one four and five chords on a guitar i can play blitzkrieg bop uh -huh. so like in 10 minutes i could go from never having held a guitar to playing blitzkrieg bop and to this day i still find that with young people who are learning like bass or guitar or drums that these are the kind of songs that they get drawn to early on because they're accessible and that's a one way that they've kind of stayed fresh over time that young people still get drawn to them because they're material that they can understand that they can start to put their hands on um and that speaks to them my very first lesson ever on bass, I learned Green Day music. That's what my teacher taught me, and it was perfect. It's the best introduction to learning music because it's simple, it's accessible, and it's fun. That's what I mean. It speaks it's, to it's them. It's fun to kick around and, you know, be it's, rebellious. Yeah, it's rebellious. It's something that's always going to appeal to the youth, and that's why even though punk got pigeonholed and seen from this very specific two-year musical gap, it's continued to thrive and continued to be a culturally relevant thing because being young and rebellious never is going to go out of style. <laughs> young, right, right. Punk music started as a very American musical form. It was mostly centered in New York and then it transfers over to England and becomes huge. It explodes thanks to the Sex Pistols and the Clash. So we talk about the Sex Pistols first. I find them to be a very interesting case because the Sex Pistols, to a lot of people, they think of as almost the pinnacle of punk in terms of their confrontational attitude and their effect on society in Britain. What I find interesting about them, though, is that they were really, in a lot of ways, manufactured by their producer, who was Malcolm McLaren. Malcolm McLaren took Richard Hell's look from television 
and he specifically dressed these guys up like him and told them how to behave, told them how to act in interviews. They were almost like a boy band (laughs) more than anything. That's really interesting because I've never really thought about it that way. But I've also always been really intrigued by the name Sex Pistols because it's always come across to me as something that's just particularly like intentionally provocative exactly i mean that's the whole reason why they named themselves that so that they're instantly pushing someone yes yeah well that was mclaren's whole deal right he hired johnny rotten because he was the jerk in the record store that nobody could stand right or what Uh was yeah specifically because he was such an unpleasant person yeah they got him and they got sid vicious and they put these guys together because they were like these guys are gonna drive people nuts And was his goal, what was McLaren's goal? Did he have any sincerity to it? Or was he being totally, like, they'll drive people's nuts and I just want to stir things up or I'll make money? Or do you have any sense of that? Probably all the above. Yeah, why is it one thing, right? Yeah, he was, on Wikipedia, they list him as a visual artist, performer, clothes designer, and boutique owner. So I think he was overall an opportunist. He could sell a lot of cheap clothes for a lot of money. (laughs) Put some safety pins on it. Right. Mark it up. These, these jeans we were going to have to throw yeah. out because they're ripped or now, yeah, we can. I, I, I just will disclose myself as a non-Sex Pistols fan here. For me, the Sex Pistols, I just find interesting going along with the whole history of punk music, but I kind of agree. I was never really into their music that much. We're going to listen to the first track on their album, the only album they ever made, called Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. And this first track is called Holidays in the Sun. groups are contemporaneous with the sex pistols here this is the same time as the ramones releasing their first album in 76 in america and now in the uk you have the sex pistols formed around 75 and released this album in 1977 so they're all around the same time along with the clash and the damned so the clash the damned and sex pistols are the three big English punk bands and the English scene becomes really influential and defines a lot of what we think of as punk music. Yeah, I, I'm just noticing that for a punk song, the tempo was a bit laid back and it's a it's a full like three minutes and 15 seconds, right? So that's like standard pop song length. Yeah, Malcolm... Which Le- doesn't seem very punkish to me to have a three-minute song. Because Malcolm McLaren wanted this to be more of a pop album yeah, than a punk album. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm picking up on. And that's why it's a lot more polished. It's a lot more produced than the Ramones were. If I was to be a jerk, I'd say plastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that's really what he was going for. He wanted it to be more mass appealing. He wanted to meld that with the confrontational 
rebellious nature of the band because he w- just wanted to capture the zeitgeist is what he was trying to do. So it's 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 sort of the aesthetic without the means. Yeah, and that's why that's why I don't like the Sex Pistols. Yeah, and okay. I think that's why a lot of people who are into punk aren't necessarily that into the Sex Pistols, and they appeal more to the superficial aspects of punk. Cool. On the flip side, you have the Clash. And the Clash are the exact opposite in the sense that they take punk musically to its logical conclusion with the means that they have. They release London Calling in 1979. And after this, punk sort of has a crisis because it doesn't know how to move on beyond this album because it sets the standard. We're going to listen to the opening track, London Calling. This first album from The Clash. This is London Calling, which is not their first album. Their first album was 1977, and this is 1979. So we kind of skipped over their first album because it's more of like the Ramones kind of sound. But this Mm -hmm. is where they really expand to a lot of different sounds and genres and influences. So punk has been exported from New York mainly, right? Uh-huh. To British Isles. What changes kind of happen on the way? What separates them and, and what, what caused that? When you go from America to England, you lose a lot of the original poetic and artistic influences that came through the Velvet Underground and mm-hmm. Patti Smith. And I think that you get more of the rebellious aspects of the music. I think that gets turned up. The political aspect, I think, really gets turned up. They get way more political, especially The Clash, than any of the American bands do really Pink until the Floyd really the Wall the 80s. style. Yeah, uh-huh. I think the New York guys were trying to tear down and start again, whereas The Clash really had deep reverence and deep influence from the 60s rock bands, including the Rolling Stones especially, and a little bit of Beatles, and a little bit of The Who, and The Clash. If you look at the album cover of London Calling, you'll see a very specific lettering that harkens back to Elvis's original album. It has the pink and green letterings of their name on the left and right, and we'll link to those pictures, and you can see them and how they compare to each other. And in the lyrics of London Calling... They talk about Beatlemania has bitten the dust. Yeah. We'll link to the images on the podcast post on the website at loosefilter.com. So if you're listening through iTunes or SoundCloud, just go to the website and check out the post on this where we have the playlist 
of everything that we did with links and we'll link to these images but it's a deliberate riff on the elvis cover it's an obvious echo of this famous elvis album cover what is like could you unpack that why i think the clash is trying to say that we are building on this rock tradition and we need to take it the next step and we need to make it new and make it ours and they were paying reverence and respect to these old albums. I think that the English musicians especially were more appreciative of the older styles and trying to build on them. It seems that the clash is more political maybe because of the social climate in England. That was their class warfare was really heating up. This is immediately pre... No, this is is early Thatcher. She started in 1979, which is when this album was released. We were just talking about So a lot of white-hot class warfare in England, certainly, and and I think the Clash are coming out of the working class, and and politically that's where their voice is coming from. We see this continued on. It starts in England in the late 70s because of, like you were saying, the climate and the class climate, and this really goes into overdrive in America during the 80s when you have... Ronald Reagan, and that becomes a big rallying point for a lot of the 80s bands that we'll talk about in the next episode. Yeah, they got Thatcher before we got Reagan, so, you know. I notice about The Clash, it's interesting that you mentioned, Anthony, that they are very conscious of their musical influences, and you can hear it in their music. This is the first band that we've listened to that was aware of themselves as musicians. Like, not only they seem to have, certainly than the Sex Pistols, more knowledge and intelligence in their music. In their craft. But they're historically, they're self-aware in the sense that they know where they fit in the evolution of their style and they're self-conscious about it. Not in the sense of worrying what other people think, but it's in their music. They're aware of it and the roots are there and they know what they're building on. Yeah, they saw themselves as an extension of the existing rock tradition and they really capitalized that and they started to be referred to as the only band that matters. So that that's an interesting, that seems like a discontinuity from the New York bands who saw themselves as breaking away. The Clash see themselves as furthering. Yeah, that's definitely true and I find that really interesting that the American punk scene was more about tearing it down and starting anew but the british punk scene was much more building on the past and building on those old styles and traditions with the british artists they were trying to really convince their listeners of of an idea whereas with the american artists they weren't necessarily doing that they were just making art they were trying to think outside of the box that message of of trying to instill political uprising is a little intense but make people see the truth of how things really were or how things were were holding them down i i think that really Really was more part of the English punk movement than the American, which was more, it just wanted to be its own thing and be separate from everything. It wasn't necessarily trying to get a huge group of people together for a certain message. I kind of feel like uh, The Clash is saying we're actually part of this tradition and all that proggy stuff, because like in, in England, what was happening was absolutely like, was all prog. Like, it, super prog. It, it was super prog, and it was just like, you know, there's flutes and all kinds of weird synthesizers doing these really complicated lines. And they're like, no, no, this is the tradition we come out of. It's 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 actually simpler than this. And you guys have taken it in a weird direction that is a new tradition. This is sort of more the originators. And I think that was the same thing that was happening in the United States, but seen in a different, little different way. For some of the bands, it really was a little bit of both in that they were trying to break away from the current Prague, what was going on they were trying to break away from that tradition and go back to the pre 
Prague and more of the simplistic like Chuck Berry and just simple three chord songs, one, four, and five. That's what rock was built on. So some of the American musicians were going back to that and some of them were trying to break away from that. And that's really what I find interesting about punk is that even though it's been thought of as this one specific thing, it's so much more multifaceted than that. And it has so many different bands with different artistic aims and sounds. And it really goes beyond what most people think of as just punk. Right now we're at 1979 with The Clash's London Calling. So we covered from 69 to 79 all throughout the 70s. We see proto-punk bands from the early 70s, the Stooges and Patti Smith and television eventually turn into the more mainstream bands, the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, and the Clash. In the next episode, we're going to talk about how these bands, they lead into really a revolution in music making and how bands see themselves, how they function within the, the music world. We really see the do-it-yourself ethic explode in a huge way that leads to the birth of independent studios as we think of them now so in our next episode we're going to talk about the underground bands of the 80s that lead into what we think of as the modern indie music movement so like the bands i'm into exactly yeah you can find us online at loosefilter.com and the podcast feed is available on soundcloud and on itunes go and subscribe if you have any Comments or feedback, drop us a line, loosefilter at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. You guys suck. That's my comment.